the abounding joy of New Testament hope. This is part seven. We're looking at the objects of our hope. Last Sunday, we started on the subject of righteousness, the objects of our hope. One of them is righteousness. And I said there were six things that I wanted to look at relating to the righteousness, the hope of righteousness that we will one day possess. We looked at three. The text is Galatians 5, 1 to 11. Galatians 5, 1 to 11. I hope you have a Bible in some form or another. You should no more come to church without your Bible than you'd come without your... That's right. That's right in the Bible. Galatians 5, start at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to the yoke of of slavery. I want to just say, it's obvious, I want to point it out. Any, Any hope for an approach to God, we have a world packed full of religions. Any hope for moral reform, improvement, religious devotion that leaves out that, that leaves out Christ, can only end up there. Slavery. If you're trying to live your life without Jesus, you'll end up a slave. A slave to all that you wish you were and aren't. A slave in the sense of you'll find yourself loving habits that are self-destructive. A slave to the fear of eternity and judgment outside of Christ. That's your only option, slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's talking about the Jews who had become Christians but maintained that the old covenant signs and uh, regulations had to be carried over into the Christian life. And Paul says, no, sir, You, you can't add anything to the work of Christ on the cross. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're not saved. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're putting yourself under law, not grace. You are, look at these words, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Here's the important text that we're Drilling down into verse 5. For through the Spirit, through the Spirit, by faith, so this is what God does. This is our response. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. You were committed to this. Who hindered you from from obeying the truth? He said that Christ set us free, and now we know what kind of freedom it is. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. It's freedom to walk in the truth and to love the truth. This persuasion, this, this relying on law instead of grace, it's not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's like that with any any false idea. 
ideas spread. Thinking morphs. It rarely drifts in a good direction. You have to work for a good direction. You always drift in a bad direction. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Is this absolute view of the gospel. You have to believe this, Paul says. Not that. That won't work. This. Just this. That's uh, insufferable thinking in today's world. You take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, the law, why am I, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the, the offense of the cross has been removed. The advantage of every other religious school of thinking is that you, you don't have to encounter the offense of the cross. I can't do this myself. I need God's grace in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. We've given our minds to all sorts of things this week. This will be the highest calling of our brains right now. When we open up your word, come Holy Spirit, give us, open the eyes of our heart, not the ones on our head, but the ones in our heart, to understand and to love the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're continuing our study of this wonderful hope of the full manifestation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives. Just to be clear, a little bit of theology here. This is not the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to us in justification, where the Lord looks at Don Horgan with all his flaws and with all his faults and sees the righteousness of Jesus because, because he kept the law perfectly, he lived an absolutely sinless life, he died on the cross and that righteousness gets credited to me, though I'm not that righteous right now. That's justification. Not that righteousness. That's not what Paul's writing about here. When he talks about we're waiting for the hope of righteousness. He's talking about the, the perfectly performed righteousness like that of Jesus Christ himself in our physical existence. We don't possess that yet. Though we long for it as the Holy Spirit starts to transform our affections in this present age, we feel, Romans 8, 23, we feel the groaning in ourselves. We who have received the Spirit, Paul says. We groan because we're, we're not there yet. The awareness of all that we aren't but long to become in Christ. That's why Galatians 5, 5, we, we eagerly, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's what he's talking about. We considered three points last Sunday morning. First, this, this hope of completed righteousness in Christ is not the same as relying on the law for our standing. Second, in Christ we have been brought into a relationship with God as an heir, 
sons and daughters rather than a slave. We looked at those words in the text. And third, we wait in confident hope for this righteousness because it still lies in the future. It's not in the present. Not yet. That was three, so today we're starting at point four. Everybody get what we're doing? I want to do four, five, and six this morning. Point number four. This is so important. The hope of righteousness leads to the pursuit of righteousness. In other words, it would be a terrible mistake to conclude that Paul was teaching some kind of indifference to my present lack of righteousness. He's not. I mean, on the contrary, because he had this certain hope of fulfilled righteousness before him through Christ, what he did was he, he aimed his whole life to preparing himself for that righteousness right now. He had, he had tasted the righteousness of Christ, and he longed for more and more of that to be manifested in his present earthly existence. I get that, by the way, from Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 16. Look at me just for a sec. There are texts that you don't really have to have a firm understanding of to live the Christian life well. You don't need to be able to identify positively who the two witnesses in the book of Revelation are that get martyred. You don't need to be able to identify the 144,000. You don't need to be able to tell me exactly when the rapture is going to take place. You cannot live the Christian life without understanding these verses. Okay? I say that just so we're all going to go, oh, Got to think about these verses. You have to have these ones right. Philippians 3, 12. Not that I have already obtained this. Talking about this future righteousness. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. That's right now. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but, but one thing I do, there's the verb, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, this is his present earthly life, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Remember I said you have, to, you have to understand these verses to live the Christian life, period. Paul says that in verse 15. Those of us who are mature, this is how mature Christians think, he says. In other words, if you have it in your head that, well, I'm covered by grace. Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven no matter what I do. So I, I don't have to really worry about, you know, how holy I am or how pure I am. It doesn't matter. We even sing a course that has that line in it. My sins don't matter anymore. Of course they matter. Tremendously they matter. He says, uh, but I press on toward that righteousness. In other words, this, this promise of future righteousness, this, this inheritance laid up for me, it doesn't make me indifferent. It makes me press on. It's, it's changed the way I think about things. Let those of you who are mature, think 
Don't think otherwise. This is how you have to think. This is, this is the new heart that you get in salvation. This is how the new heart thinks. If you don't think like this, you don't have conversion. What an incredible wealth of insight in those verses. They should be weighed, not just read. Just think about these things. He he admits the incompleteness of his present experience in Christ. That's verse 12. Not that I've already attained this. I'm not already perfect. Okay, so that's that's, that's how he starts. I'm not there yet. I'm fully aware of my spiritual ineptness. So all that Paul isn't, it just, it just presses in on him with constant pressure. I'll tell you whether or not you're a Christian. Paul found present unrighteousness impossible to live with. Do you? I'm not asking you if you're perfect. He found present unrighteousness impossible to live with. Drove him nuts. But there's more. Paul is also keenly aware that he's been promised so much more in Christ Jesus. He can see what what waits for him up the road. That's in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. So this is just, it's not some dim dream. He he can see this prize in the distance. It's there. It's, It's a certain hope that he has. Now we're ready for the big question. So Paul recognizes he's not there yet. He's not perfect. He finds his present unrighteousness impossible to live with. He sees this, but there's the upward call. It's right there. I am, I, am, I am racing toward that. Now, here's my question. What effect, what effect does the future promised righteousness, what effect does that have on Paul's present righteousness? He tells us. We looked at 12. We looked at 14. This is the Oreo sandwich. Now, in the middle, you got verse 13. I do not consider that I've made it my own. One thing I do, I do is in the constant present tense. I do this, and then I do it, and I do it, and I do it. I I do this every hour of every day of my life. I, I do and redo and redo this all the time. It's the one thing I constantly do, he says. Forgetting what's behind, straining forward to what is ahead. This is really amazing. I mean, the certainty of this hope of righteousness doesn't make Paul apathetic. It makes him strain. But it's a certain thing. It's right there. He sees it. He knows it's a promise. But it makes him strain all the more. He presses into it all the more. This hope of future righteousness, it crowds in Paul's, in Paul's cranium, it crowds everything else into the shadows. That's what he means, forgetting everything that's behind. I don't have time to think about everything. 
But my pursuit of righteousness, I keep that right in front of my face. Here's a simple illustration. It's not perfect. No illustration is. But you picture a small child awaiting Christmas. How many shopping days now? This little child, he sees the tree, it's gone up, the lights are there, the presents are gradually piling up, and he knows Christmas is coming. He's certain of it. He has the date. His mother tells him he can't open those presents yet. By the way, did you, when you were kids, did you sneak down and and pry scotch tape off the end of packages? My brothers and I did that all the time. It's the fall. It gets into your... They're there. They aren't in his possession. But, but knowing Christmas is closing in doesn't make the child indifferent about it. He's more passionate about it. The closer it gets, more excited about it, thinks more about it. It's because he knows that it's coming that he can't really focus on anything else very well. This, this hope, right around the corner, it's, it's captured him. I know it's a poor illustration, but it, but it gets something of Paul's present interest in kingdom righteousness. When he looks at the promised future righteousness of Christ that will soon be his, and then says, I'm straining toward what lies ahead, he's, he's putting himself there right now. He's pulling himself up to that future moment right now. He's already relishing it. New tastes are being deepened and formed each day with Paul. He's more and more tired of things that are passing away. He's more and more affectionate about things that are eternal. And it's not just that thing that comes just from getting old. It comes from that thinking about the future righteousness of Christ. So I think you can see what this object of hope has done for Paul's pursuit of holiness. It didn't make him indifferent. It didn't make him lazy. But it changed his approach to holiness. The way of Christ with all of its discipline and self-denial and cross-carrying, don't take those things out. You can leave them there. You're safe leaving them in the Christian walk. With all of its cost, with all of its promised persecution, yes, that's what Jesus said, that that whole way of Christ has has been transformed. It wasn't just a, a list of rules and regulations for Paul. It was still costly. Read about his life. It was certainly challenging and certainly difficult. And yet Paul didn't view it as a chore. He viewed it as a a race. And when you see the prize at the end of the race, it's exhilarating. Too much time on that one. Five. The hope of righteousness must be sustained by living engagement with the Holy Spirit. He says that in Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, and then by faith. Those are the important things. Through the Spirit, 
by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope. We're looking at hope in this series, for the hope of righteousness. So immediately I'm made aware of the nature of this waiting for the hope of righteousness. It's, it's, not, it's not like a passive waiting, like sitting in a, a dentist or a, a doctor's waiting room. It's not just sitting there. It's, it's an active waiting. It's, it's waiting that seeks the deep influence of the Holy Spirit. So there's two phrases. We'll try and do both of them. Through the Spirit, that's God's side of the process. By faith, that's my response to the Spirit's work. I want to look at some practical points of application from those two phrases. So, the idea of it being through the Spirit. A, learn to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as he creates a passion and a longing and a hope for righteousness. Many Christians are far too easily brought under condemnation who aren't nearly as easily brought under conviction. Condemnation is easier than conviction. The difference is this. Conviction, conviction, the work of the Spirit, always comes in an atmosphere of positive hope and opportunity to change and grow and become clean. Condemnation just comes with the weight of despair, regret, and spiritual inertia. It's never the goal of the Spirit of God to make you despair over your sin with a full stop after it. He, he wants you to see that pain in your soul over your failure. That's a good pain. But as his work to deliver you and lead you out of that sin. Don't yield to the downward spiritual gravitational pull of condemnation. Don't yield to spiritual inertia. Don't just mope over all that you aren't and wish you were. That gets you nowhere. When your soul stings from the presence of sin, immediately turn your attention to the fact that nobody normally hates sin. So if you're starting to really hate your sin, that must be the work of your Holy Spirit. Confirming your sonship or daughtership. In other words, even as you renounce sin, Philippians Set, set your sights on the hope of righteousness. Like, like, take a promise like this. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That ought to, even with the rain, that ought to make you go home with a happy heart. It's not automatic. This is what he wants to do. Now, so it's a work of the Spirit. Not condemnation, but conviction. Leading to holiness. Now, we need to receive the Spirit's convicting work with an attitude of faith. I said there were those two phrases in Galatians 5.5. 5. Through the Spirit, we looked at that, by faith. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So the Spirit's convicting and renewing. 
we, I can tell you about it, we can talk about it, but you can't just hear it as a doctrine. It has to be embraced and pulled into your earthly life. Let me give you a practical example of how this works. Responding to the work of the Spirit in your heart through faith. That's very um, Bible-preachy language. What, what does it mean? What does it mean to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit and receive it in your daily life in faith? What does that mean? I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. And I'm going to come some examples out of this, okay? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then these words that don't really seem to fit with the rest of the text. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What in the world are you talking about idolatry? And so I'm immediately kind of clued in that this really isn't a passage about getting through times of pain and suffering. Don't worry, God will be with you and he'll bring you through it. That's true, but that's not what this text is talking about. You have other texts that talk about that. This is actually a passage about temptation and sin. And so Paul says the Spirit is faithful to work for me right in the middle of my time of temptation. The temptation here is idolatry, 14. Let, let, but let's, let's bring it to where we are. Let me just talk about a situation and how this principle works. Let's say, let's say I'm at home and I'm in the family room and I'm watching my big screen TV and I immediately become aware that there's more and more stuff on there right in the middle of the show that is, that is just absolutely inappropriate for a Christian to watch. But we're drawn to these things. We like watching a lot of those things on Netflix. And so there I am in my family room watching, and suddenly, without any preparation, no forethought on my part, it wasn't something I was looking for, the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, Don, this, this is wrong. I know nobody else can see what you're watching. The church doesn't know. But I know, Don, and this isn't right. And you need to turn that off. And so there it is. A tempting situation. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God pointing out a way of escape, right? It's not rocket science. We can all see it. There I am, a sinful situation. The Spirit speaks to make a way of escape. Now, do I respond in faith? What's that mean, responding in faith? Well... That Galatians 5, 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's what's happening in my family room. That's the work of the Holy Spirit prompting my life in the direction of that hope of righteousness. Now comes the question. Do I respond with faith? We through the Spirit, by faith. 
Well, there's a million different responses I can make. You've made the same ones. I can say to myself, you know what? This is just my overactive conscience bringing up all those prudish hang-ups from my old upbringing. I can say, I bet you I don't watch as much junk on my TV as Dyer watches on his TV. Everybody watches this. All Christians watch this stuff, right? We don't care how many F-bombs. We don't care about what, how many same-sex relations. We, we watch it. Everybody does. It's just the changing times. Or the worst one of all, you know what? This is, I am not under that kind of legalism with these rules of do's and don'ts. God's made me free. I can watch what I want to watch. And graciously, the Holy Spirit doesn't just say, you idiot. That's not the kind of freedom I'm bringing into your life. Now, let me tell you about all of those responses. Not spoken, just thought. Let me tell you about all those responses. Not one of them is receiving the Spirit's work in faith. Not one of them. And not one of them is going to bring deeper righteousness into my heart. Not one of those responses. The best way to grow in present righteousness and the hope of future righteousness would be to respond like this. The Spirit of God speaks to my heart about that TV program. Here's what I should say. How good of the Lord to work so faithfully right in my home. Nobody else was around to help me. It would have been very easy to have these sinful thoughts attach themselves to my brain like barnacles on a ship, leeching spiritual life. And yet the Spirit of God, wanting to bring freedom, for freedom, Christ has set you free. He came, thank you, Lord, for such great love and your attention, and then get up, turn off the TV, pause, give the Lord thanks for his renewing presence. There, that's receiving the work of the Spirit through faith, and it's going to produce righteousness in my heart. But you can't, you can't just leave it here. That has to filter its way through a dozen situations that will come up this week. We read the text. I won't take the time. In Hebrews 12, where the writer says, we've been brought through the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have loved ones who have died in the Lord, gone on before you, however fondly you remember them, and they're never as godly as we make them out to be at all the funerals. But in your fondest memory of them, they have never been as Christ-like as they are now. And you will be too. The hope of righteousness made absolutely perfect. And what it does right now, it makes present in righteousness, unrighteousness impossible to live with. Everyone said...